This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We continue our series on neurosurgery programs, and today we're joined by Ash Sharon. Ash is the program director at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, I've known about Thomas Jefferson for a long time because of you and Jim Harrop and Dr. Rosenwasser, and you guys have one of the biggest spine programs in the country, just like us in Miami. So super excited to have you on to tell the applicants about what a great training experience you have there. But why don't you start off by introducing yourself, telling us about you know how you trained, where you trained, and your interests. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Mike. Um, my name is Ashwini Sharn. I'm actually the neurosurgical program director uh, at Thomas Jefferson, like you heard. Uh, I've been here as faculty now about 20 years, uh, which is a long time. I also did my neurosurgery training at Jefferson, so I'm sort of inculcated in this Jefferson philosophy. And I spent one year uh, as for a fellowship where I, I did a fellowship both in spinal neurosurgery and functional neurosurgery. And as we get into the further questions, I'll, I'll circle back on why that's so relevant to the whole story. Yeah. So tell us about how that lays out. So you guys are a seven-year program. You take two or three residents. Uh, so we're a seven-year program. And right now, we just got increased uh, complement. So we are going to go to four a year uh, starting this year. Oh, and alternating four, three, four, three. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so four, three, four, three, four, well, then hopefully four permanently every year, right? Exactly. Okay, so now for some applicants, that's going to be impressive because like that must be a huge place. For other people, that's like, wow, that's a lot of residents, 28 residents, right? So tell us about, I mean, are you guys so busy? You need all these residents. So uh, we, we made a fundamental uh, change in the way we think um, the last one or two years. And we're trying to tailor residency to get the resident better suited for what they want their career to look like. So we're gonna be in a transition phase. So two parts of this question. The transition phase is gonna look like, instead of the traditional four month blocks, which is what we had when we had three residents, we're gonna actually have three month blocks. So we're gonna keep the regular three month type blocks for the residents, and then every resident will have a three month elective every year. Right. So the idea is that we can focus on areas that they want to further develop, be it research, health economic research, uh, business degree, MPH, um, or even clinical skills. So that's what that extra three month elective could do. And regarding the busyness, um, our goal wasn't necessarily to do this because we had so many surgical cases, but we also added on a community hospital site. And in our city, it's at Abington medical center. And so that added on actually to the program, to already busy program, another 900 to 1000 cases. And our idea behind integrating that into the into the rotation, which we started before the increased complement, was that you get exposure both to an academic practice and a community practice. Because I think half the people probably end up taking community or hybrid jobs anyway. So we wanted to make sure that you get the visibility of both worlds. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. So, you know, you guys are in a fantastic city as well, Philadelphia, which will be the setting for the next WNS meeting in 2022. And, and I think Philadelphia is a fantastic place. Tell us about what it's like to be a, a resident living in Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, Philadelphia is a great city. Uh, they, during a day with us, I, I think the residents do a phenomenal job just 
talking about the city, but you know, we have every major sports team for the people who are sports fans. Um, the dining has continued to grow and become fantastic. Uh, even in the post-COVID world, you know, all the restaurants are open and, and every night you really can hop around to a new restaurant. Um, on top of that, there's a lot of great outdoors, uh, biking trails, hiking trails, you know, mountains, um, being away, you know, you're, you're an hour and a half car ride from New York city, two and a half hour car ride from Washington, DC. You got a major airport that you can get in and out of. So as long as you like the cosmopolitan lifestyle, it's a great city and it's a smaller version. Honestly, it's not as complicated as New York either. Yeah, and you can access uh, most of America very quickly from Philly. It's very central, right? Right. Yeah, Philly. Philly is actually um, it's it's a good airport to get in and out of because it's not actually a big, very heavily busy airport too. So, what do you think makes your program special? Because obviously, you've been there for a long time. You train there. You love that place. What makes that like the program that people are going to want to join into or match at? Yeah, it's a great question. Our, um, our, our program really merits what our institution is. You know, Thomas Jefferson this year is 197 years old. And the history of Jefferson has always been the surgical program. And, and this is since its founding in 1824, basically. Um, people used to come all around the world to Jefferson. The famous story I like to tell people is there was a time um, where everybody around the world came to Jefferson to learn how to apply leeches for amputation, you know, <laughs> to, to stop blood clots. And, and that was a surgical disease. You know, in those days, and surgical application of leeches, and and of course we're not doing that anymore. But the tradition of big surgical programs has continued, and I think why I tell people that story is the institution really supports us as surgeons. Um, you know, we get to have the latest toys. I mean, simple things like you know we run our own interventional. We have three interventional suites in Center City campus. We have both the Monteris laser and the Visualize laser. We actually have the Zeem navigation system, as well as the Striker, as well as the Medtronic O-Arm navigation for spine. We probably have 10 spine instrumentation companies. And so when people ask, how do you do that? And, and why how are you able to have so many, um, and I'm putting quotation mark toys, it's because the institution has always been indoctrinated to believe that the surgeon needs to have the right tools. And so we are a program where if you want to get that really broad exposure, to a lot of surgery, so you understand the deep nuances and how to manage the complicated patients and its complications. Um, you will get a lot of that always. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, you know, programs need that kind of infrastructure to prepare for the future. You're absolutely right about that. Are there any gaps there? I mean, I, I know the spine is super strong there. Are there gaps? Um, in the training, our, our gap is most likely uh, with the volume of really bad head injury and horrible trauma that sometimes uh, large centers. And I know at Miami, you guys are a phenomenal trauma center. Um, the way Thomas Jefferson is situated, we actually have um, Temple, which is north of us, which is a phenomenal trauma center. Penn is to the west of us, and they're a phenomenal trauma center. In New Jersey, you have Cooper Camden University, and they're phenomenal trauma centers. So unless you really uh, hurt your head, within the six, eight block radius of Thomas Jefferson, you're going to be filtered into that. So, so when it comes to head injury management, honestly, which is a really core part of neurosurgery, we give enough so that people understand ICP management and good critical care. It's an integral part of our other neurosurgery diseases. Um, but head injury is someplace that uh, I don't think there's any way, unless we did rotations for somebody who was interested, could we bolster. 
Now, tell me also about the culture because you're a big program. Um, there are very few programs now with four a year. Um, you guys will be one of them. We are headed towards that. And in that setting, the culture of the place, I think it becomes even more important because a small program with one a year can be very much influenced by the chair's personality and all that. But you have to have a concerted drive to have a culture in a program with 28 residents, right? So how would you describe, like in a nutshell, what the culture is of training in neurosurgery at uh, Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, this is it's such a wonderful thing. And I, I think we can probably speak about this for hours on how you think about it and I think about it. But um, the best way that we've been able to distill this is, and we try to even indoctrinate people through it, we, we have a culture of camaraderie and we have a culture of knowledge sharing. The idea is that you, you want to really bring everybody up together. And, and so the residents and the chiefs, you know, we pair, um, like when, when and if you interview at Thomas Jefferson with us, um, you will also be interviewed by the fifth years who would be your, your senior chief residents. And, and so everybody within the program has resident mentors. And of course, we're not necessarily bound that it has to be that way. Um, and you're sort of responsible for their success. And, and so that inherently develops camaraderie. We as faculty, you know, host journal clubs at our homes. We do events together. Um, it's always been about, you know, we should be having these great shared experiences because neurosurgery has so much more to offer than only neurosurgery. And, and this idea about knowledge sharing is huge. Um, the residents also sort of run their own M&Ms, right? Because there are sometimes people have complications and it's hard to speak about it with all your faculty in the room. And they, we also have a group M&Ms, uh, don't get me wrong, but it's a different way where they actually have to take ownership. Um, and that's the last part of the culture that we really promote is you have to have really severe ownership for your patients and ownership for the patient and their family through that neurosurgery journey. So, so ownership, camaraderie, and knowledge sharing. That's fantastic. Well, Ash, I would encourage everybody to apply to uh, TJ, as it's known, and um, good luck on the match. You guys are going to do great. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We continue our mini-series on programs, and today we're joined by Dr. Cambrin, who's at University of Calgary in Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why don't you start off by just giving us a little introduction to yourself and what your program is like in Canada? Sure. So uh, myself, I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon, and um, I graduated from the University of Toronto training program and then spent nine years at the University of Utah and uh, worked with John Kessel there. And then um, came back, recruited back to uh, University of Calgary um, to become program director and run, run the program. In terms of the program, we are located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, so just north of Montana for our American colleagues. Um, and um, yeah, we're the second biggest program in, in Canada. Obviously, Toronto is the biggest program in the world. And um, we, yeah, we're a very large program, a very academic program. Yeah, I, you know, I've gotten to know your program quite well. I know Raj Mita well, and uh, your former program director, John Holbert, is a good friend of mine. And currently we have Michael Yang, who is one of your graduates here, and he is absolutely one of my favorite spine fellows of all time. So clearly you guys uh, create a fantastic product. Do you want to give us some intro into how Canada is in relation to America? In other words, do you, do you accept American medical students if they apply to Canada? Yeah, they are. Um, they can apply. We, we very rarely get uh, an American medical student. 
I think the only ones we usually get are expat Canadians that went uh, moved to the U.S. to do medical school and then are looking to come back. Uh, those are uh, we get about one of those uh, every couple of years. Just there's so many residency training programs in the U.S. Usually we're sort of an afterthought for Americans, um, and uh, but we do they are eligible definitely they are eligible. Uh, it's kind of weird you have to sort of choose between the two like the. Uh, in the old days, it was uh, like um, they ran concurrently and there were some rules, but I think Canada moved there slightly so that it would make it more amenable. But but certainly, yeah, Americans that are interested are certainly uh, uh, can apply. Well, certainly uh, students in the field, whether they're applying from Canada, applying from the United States or an expat, as you described, the ability to move around to visit places in person this year is greatly reduced. Though, as we've heard earlier in this series, there will be some opportunities for in-person visits later. So for those of the students, uh, for those students who are applying from America or applying from Canadian medical schools who won't be able to visit you in person this year before interviews, why don't you give us a sense of what the campus is like, what the atmosphere is like, and what, what the culture is like with the people there in your department? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so our culture is one of, like, we're known for being very academic. And like the sort of the three things, the three tenets of Calgary is a uh, very robust research program, a high collegiality amongst the residents and high intensity clinical training. So like, just like any Canadian or American residency, you get excellent training. Um, we have a very, Foothills Hospital uh, is our adult center. And uh, the daily census there is like 60 to 120 patients. So five to six ORs a day. So there's a, a, always a ton of opportunity. We get residents early and often to the OR in terms of like, there's none of this. You don't get to go to the OR till you're PGY3. That, that sort of is antiquated. So uh, we feel we give excellent clinical training and I hope uh, Michael Yang's proving that, which he's loving the fellowship by the way. Um, and we're proud to have him come back as staff in six more months providing he passes his fellowship. Um, and then the other thing is um, the, yeah, the research excellence. So in Canada, you get, it's a, it's a mandatory year of research. Um, and so it's paid for by the Royal College or the government. And so we here in Calgary want to take advantage of that. Like we're doing one year of research is not that useful. I mean, you can write some, some papers and stuff, but we want to parlay that into degrees um, some academic currency just to make our applicants as competitive as humanly possible for both Canadian American jobs and, and hopefully leaders of the future in neurosurgery. And then our last thing is collegiality. Like, so uh, residents are heavily involved in the um, interview process uh, to interview the future, which is a little bit unique. Um, and uh, it's just, it's led to, uh, you know, uh, it's not social engineering by any means. It's just because they're involved, they're more invested in their colleagues and there's more of a collegial attitude and it's something a little bit. And, and if you know John Hurlburt, that was key to his heart. Uh, and that is something that he did a phenomenal job setting up this residency and I've tried to my hardest to continue. So yesterday I spoke with Dr. Lipsman from Toronto and um, it, it struck me as interesting that Canada has a slightly different training process. Uh, can you tell us about the the number of years of residency? How many people you take? So we take two a year, 
all the other programs in Canada take one, we take two, and Toronto takes three or four, depending on the year. And so um, that's the answer to that question. And then our, our training is minimal six years. Uh, so that's where it's a bit different than the U.S. And one of those is a research year, so five clinical years. The average length of one of a Calgary residency is those 7.9, because like I said, many people turn that one research year into a master's of two years or a PhD of four. And so, yeah, that's generally the length of our training. You know, one of the most important things I've found in these conversations and trying to give the applicants a sense of a program is not just the department and the personnel and the work, but the area where they'll be living. Um, as you mentioned, for the geographically non-astute American listeners, you're situated just north of us there, uh, north of Montana. So I wonder if you could speak a bit about the area surrounding your hospital, uh, what the residents do in their off time, and what kinds of things are offered there in the city where you're living. Yeah, so Calgary is sort of world-renowned from a point of view tourism-wise because we're close to Banff, which is one of the great international ski destinations. Mm. Well, not just ski destination, you know, Sunshine Louise, some of the best skiing in the world. Uh, and so people flock here in the winter. Also in the summer, hiking, mountain biking. So we tend to, residents that like outdoorsy, um, not I like personally, I'm not a, I'm a urbanite. I love restaurants and I like, I like the urban life. Uh, and Calgary is a big city, 1.3 million. Um, and so we certainly have all the trappings of a large urban center. Um, but 45 minutes drive, you're in the middle of paradise, in a mountain paradise. And if you love mountain bike hiking, skiing, or even just seeing the beauty of the world, it's only, like I said, an hour away at the most. So that's a, so a lot of the residents take advantage of that, perhaps take advantage too much in that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so, and the culture of the city, uh, can, like other Canadians would probably call Calgary the Texas because, you know, there's a lot of ranch and people wear cow. You come to the airport and all the volunteers wear white cowboy hats. And so we're sort of known for that. We're oil produce. That's our main sector. So, so people call it that, but we're obviously very Canadian. Uh, it's very uh, multicultural, the city. It's, it's the youngest city, city in Canada because the jobs are all here. So people flock here from all over Canada and the U.S., Quite frankly, we have a ton of Texans living in Alberta, Calgary. Um, yeah, so that's and we all we have a, a, the world famous Calgary Stampede. You know, you can't talk about Calgary without the Stampede. It's the largest rodeo in the world. <laughs> People flock here from all over the world because, quite frankly, they pay the most for the, if you win the rodeo. So those are sort of our claim to fame as a city. And speak to the culture of your program, how the residency is. I've heard that you guys have a very athletic program where you have skiing competitions against other uh, programs, kind of like uh, the Germans do, I think. The Germans, uh, Karl Schaller does that with his friend in Munich, Bernhard Meyer. And so there's a culture of competitiveness and, as you said, outdoors life. But what, is it, what does it feel like to be a resident there? I think... Um... You know, when people come and do uh, electives, the thing, and I always go for a coffee with them at the end, and so outsiders usually are struck by really the culture of collegiality. Um, you know, the residents are always really, uh, our residents like hanging around together. Um, and we got residents, you know, to, uh, complete bookworm nerds, people who have children. We have party animals, but they sort of have each other's back. I think the 
the culture of research excellence and being a neurosurgeon plus, like it doesn't have to be basic science, clinethy, can be medical education. We've had residents do MBAs. Uh, I have an engineer, one doing an engineering master's at the moment. Um, just the culture of come here, this is kind of an academia, um, like uh, cultures of support. We're not in competition. Usually you're in different years. Some want spine, some want basket, some want peds, and sort of work together, you know, um, it just that, that research really does tend to bring them together because, hey, I have to do some stats on my basic science project and the clinical scientists can help and they quite oftenly do. And so we, we have a lot of inter-resident mentorship in Calgary, it's something I'm very proud of, that the more senior residents are mentoring not only the clinical aspirations of their young residents, but their older residents, as, or, or, but their um, research aspirations as well. I think, did that answer your question? Maybe it didn't. Okay. No, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Cameron, I, I think you've answered all these questions excellently and provided some really vital information for the medical students applying into the field this year across North America. Um, you know, as, as you said, the, the Americans come up there less frequently than the native Canadians. And so I myself learned quite a lot about your program today, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast to share that. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to highlight Calgary and uh, Canada. Thank you. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, today we have, uh, we are delighted to have Dr. Michael Haglin, Program Director at Duke Neurosurgery, for another of our residency spotlights for the 2021-22 interview season. Dr. Haglin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're very excited to have this opportunity for you to share some of the cultures, some of the in and outs and the finer details of the Duke Neurosurgery program with the applicants this year who, of course, aren't going to have the same opportunity to visit as years past. Um, if you could, why don't you give our listeners just a quick overview and kind of a, a, a quick uh, snapshot view of the program as it is today? Yeah, I think we strive for a couple things. Obviously, the most important thing in any training program is to get well-trained as a neurosurgeon. To me, the, the thing that makes a program, you know, desirable or goes along with someplace somebody might want to train is what, what are the innovations? What are the extra things? So, I mean, first of all, I think you need the clinical volume. So you see the variety and the, the wide range of cases you want to see. And in Duke, we have about 5,200 cases a year spread out among the four hospitals, about 3,200 at our main, you know, Duke University Hospital, about 600 at the VA hospital where the residents rotate, another 800 at Durham Regional where they rotate, and then about 1,400 at Duke Raleigh. It's a community hospital where I do some operating, but it's very busy. And a lot of the residents go over there to do skull base with one of our skull base surgeons, Ali Zomorodi, or come over to do more fine tuning of their spine if they're doing a spine enfolded fellowship. So the clinical volume to me is really important. But after that, then it's, you know, the research, as you know, probably Duke's ranked number four in the country in NIH funding and has the top PI in the country in John Sampson in funding. And we have a really strong emphasis for the residents that Peter Fetchy's helped develop. He's one of the MD PhDs and, and brain tumor immunotherapy researchers. It's called our PhD scientist track, where instead of having a mentor, which we'll talk about, um, you have a PhD committee 
that basically gets formed when you're a first or second year resident and maybe a couple people from outside of the neurosurgery program plus one of the neurosurgeons. And they kind of guide you through your research academic side of your career. John Sampson's always emphasized, we want to train you to be the best blank, blank, blank neurosurgeon in the country. So when you finish, you have choice of jobs and where you want to go and what kind of practice you want to establish, especially if it's in academics. So I think that part of it's really, really exciting. Uh, we also have one of the R25 grants. There's, I think, 10 or 11 programs around the country where one of our residents each year, if they write a high quality grant, get this R25 from NIH, which supports you during our fourth year of uh, dedicated research. And if you write a really good one, we had this year, we were lucky enough to have two, Steve Harwood and Dan Sext Daniel Sexton both got R25s. And what we do for those people in our program is we pay it forward in your PGY six and five year when you're outside the lab and getting ready for your seventh year, which is kind of the transition to practice. We'll pay about thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, so you can have a research tech half time from the lab you were working in uh, to help you keep the project going until you get back to it during your PGY seven year when you can do an enfolded, you know, cast approved fellowship kind of thing. I think the different facets of the program. One of them is mentoring. Uh, Steve Cook, who's one of our assistant program directors, is also involved in this Fagan leadership program. Steve was in the military, very involved in how we train the next generation of leaders. And there's this thing called the Fagan Leadership Program. It's nationally known. Coach K teaches and gives lectures in it each year. Um, and it's pretty exciting. And then one of our residents, Teresa Williamson, who just headed up to MGH at Harvard. She started this program, this coaching program, where we use psychology graduate students to meet with the residents to do coaching on resilience and wellness and how to handle difficult situations. And we're also launching this coming year in January, a formal Duke University coaching program that has a lot of the fundamentals of how to be better at your job, how to be better in interacting with people. It's a real formalized coaching program and, and the neurosurgery program is going to be one of the early adopters of that. On the education side, I think the big thing I'd say is, is we are trying to be innovative in every way possible, not only from our inside Duke, but we will be glad to copy or, you know, help out with any other program that comes up with something innovative. But I'd say the big thing is we're one of only two programs in the whole country, Utah with Randy Jensen being the other one where a program director actually has gone back and gotten their master's in education. I got mine in 2016 from USC and Randy Jensen's getting his, but we're the only program in the country where we have a PhD educator, uh, Kate McDaniel, who's a PhD in education is our director of clinical and educational initiatives. And she works with me closely in helping develop new curriculum. And I guess the big thing I'm most proud of is we try to focus on something I learned in my master's in education, which is called the collaborative education environment. Westberg and Jason wrote this book on collaborative clinical education that we had to read. It was like 400 pages before we started my master's program. But it's all about if you let the learners be involved in their own learning and how they are taught and what subjects and, and the approach to it, they'll learn more. And so we have many things in the program. We have a residency education committee with representatives from each class and they work with the program directors and we just designed a whole new curriculum that's going to run over three years but they've been the really the forming the foundation of that um, 
And so that's a new thing. And then we have something we call the RIP the program every month. It's called the residency improvement process where the residents meet for a half hour to 45 minutes by themselves, come up with a list of three things to put on the whiteboard that they want fixed. And then the program leadership, myself, our associate program director, Eric Thompson, Kate McDaniel, and Steve Cook, we meet with the residents and work on solutions to solve those problems. And sometimes they're big things and sometimes they're small things, but it's to constantly be always being trying to improve and meet the residents' needs. And we they have to be involved in the, in the solutions also, but we work very hard to get those things solved and we hold ourselves accountable by popping up the slide from the previous month, the next month. My goal usually is to try to get those things done in a few weeks, but sometimes it may take many months to get it all solved, but it's a really important part of our program. As you mentioned in the education thing, our surgical autonomy program, which was my master's thesis, I think is something really unique. Now, there's some other programs that are using our program now, but it's unique to Duke. And basically, we've used Vygotsky's social learning theory, not to get too deep into the weeds here. But when you hear what he said, he said his learning theory was when a more knowledgeable other, an MKO, works with a learner, i.e. faculty resident, in their zone of proximal development, maximal learning occurs and the learner is most motivated to learn. What does that mean? That means we've taken each of the cases in neurosurgery and divided them into four zones. Just roughly and generally, zone one is the positioning and opening. Zone two is the second hardest part of the case. Zone three is the key and critical element. And zone four is maybe the second or third hardest part of the case in the wrap-up. So if you took an anterior cervical discectomy, zone one would be positioning opening to get the x-ray. Zone two would be taking out the disc, roughing up the end plates, sizing the graft. Zone three would be the part under the scope, taking off the PLL and opening up the frame. And zone four would be putting in the grafts and the hardware and closing. Each one of those zones is graded by the faculty in a sequential manner that shows more autonomy for the resident. T is teach and demonstrate. I'm doing that part and the resident's assisting me. But after I show it to them once, everything after that, they're in the captain's seat. And A is advise and scaffold where the resident's doing it all, but I'm kind of doing all the talking. Uh, G is guide and monitor where they're doing all the talking and I'm asking them questions about possible complications and they're doing the whole thing. And then solo and observers, they're doing the whole thing. They're doing the talking or they could teach one of the juniors how to do that zone. And once you finish zone one, you move on to zone two. Once you finish zone two, you move on to zone three. Because when you do your case logs as a resident, that doesn't really say much. It just says you were there. Now, were you like doing the whole case? That's really great. Or are you just watching or assisting and not really getting to do much? And this way with the, the SAP or the surgical autonomy program, the residents really have autonomy for a portion of the case every time. And rather than being the old style that most people use, which is an apprentice model, like hang out with me and I'll show you how to do this. And hopefully at the end, you know how to do it. You don't really know if you know how to do it. With the SAP, we have a grading system and the residents, it's on it's on, a, on your smartphone and you get feedback from the faculty immediately. You get to see what you put and you get to see what I put where I graded you. And that works on what we call your metacognitive skills, learning about your own learning. And we've shown that that really helps the residents improve. Um, I guess the other unique feature about Duke, and I think we've we've tried to, when John Sampson gave us that call to be the best blank blank in neurosurgery, my two focuses were education, which I think we're doing well at, and then global neurosurgery. We have the first ever division of global neurosurgery and neurology in the country. Um, 
we go to Uganda and other countries, but mainly in Uganda. And we have, we take big teams before COVID, but we will start again, hopefully next year. But we take teams and do training there. Uh, we have 10 residents in the program. When we first went, they only had five neurosurgeons for 30 million people. Um, now they have 13 and we have 10 more in the training program. And I serve as the program director of that. I meet with them every couple of weeks and we do grand rounds and things like that. And then we train them when we're over there. Our residents have the opportunity to go over there for a week or a month, either go a week with us or do the opposite of what the military says, which is leave no man or woman behind. And we do leave them behind hmm. to spend another three weeks. there, just getting sort of just invested in the culture of what it's like to work in a low middle income country. And then we have a huge research component. We have 125 people in our research program, mainly working on traumatic brain injury and predictive modeling for that, for triage and treatment. And then we have a big epilepsy component. We just got an R01 from NIH uh, with Angela Kakuza, who's a neurologist in Uganda, and our team here, Deb Koltai and Tony Fuller and myself uh, that are in DGNN. And we're going to be studying epilepsy in adolescents, which is half their population. Uh, since the mean age is 18 and we're probably not, we don't know yet, but our funding score was really high. Getting an R01 in our predictive modeling work to use for treatment and triage of traumatic brain injury. So I think if you put that all together, what we have is, you know, great clinical work. Research is rock solid. We, mentorship is something we really pride ourselves in. And then this education model where the residents are heavily involved and how they're educated, what rotations they do, and things like that. And then, you know, we have these things, like I said, the surgical autonomy program and the global neurosurgery program to go along with just amazing brain tumor center. Um, Peter Fetchy and Rory Goodwin have developed this brain and spine metastasis center that's just flourishing. We have a huge spine program led by Chris Shaffrey. We're one of the few programs in the country where orthopedic and neurosurgery are actually combined into a division that sits kind of in between neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. So we have weekly conferences, two or three conferences um, for our spine program, which, I mean, my, myself, like last year, I know we did 900 ACDFs in, in our program. I did 400. So we have a very busy spinal practice just for routine stuff. But then people like Chris Shaffrey doing these giant, you know, scoliosis procedures and things like that is just an advantage to have somebody of his stature in our program, which is really helpful. Wow. Well, Dr. Haglund, that was an incredible head-to-toe, inside-out dissection of the Duke Neurosurgery Program. I think anyone listening has a great sense of what your program has to offer. We do want to respect your time, but before we wrap, I wonder, you know, Duke is one of those handful of places that has a lot of Duke lifers. And places that have that, I, I feel, have a really strong and consistent culture that really, uh, you know, th there's a heartbeat that runs through it. So I wonder if you could just speak briefly to what the culture of the program is. What are the residents like since a lot of the applicants won't be able to come out and meet them before the first interview? Yeah. So I guess that that's a good point uh, that about the, you know, lifers, you know, I came here, trained at the university of Washington uh, under Dick Wynn and, Sean Grady and Mitch Berger and, you know, Matt Howard and those people were in our program, Guy McCann, Jerry Grant, who's at Stanford. We had a great group of residents there. And then I came to Duke. And when you look at the culture, Dr. Freeman's been here for 40 years. Dennis Turner's been here many years. I've been, I'm starting my 
seventh year at Duke. I, I just love it. I mean, it's great being on an undergraduate campus um, in a situation where people are very close. The coolest thing about our residents, I'd say, is this. They're super talented, but they're massively diverse. Scott Page wrote that book on the diversity bonus. And even though we have this very diverse resident population, and I'm really proud to say we have 33% of our residents are women, seven out of the 21 are women, and the bottom two classes, 50% are women. Um, we want to recruit the best of the best, but we have a very diverse population in gender and race and, you know, people's view of the world and extroverts and introverts, but somehow they all combine together. And I think the thing that is the key is there's people in the faculty that really care about teaching them and mentoring them. And they themselves um, have a great camaraderie. And I think it's mainly because when I knowing as the program director and having talked to the residents, um, most of them ranked our place number one. So they all wanted to be here. So, you know, if you rank us number nine and you're here and you're going, oh gosh, I'm at Duke, I really don't want to be there. But most of the residents all wanted to be here. And, you know, I think that that helps them thrive when it's tough times in the middle of winter during your junior residency year. But I think that that camaraderie where they get to work on important things together, where it's research or the education or just helping each other out is what makes it special. And I mean, I think the residents are amazing. I, I love our residents. Um, they're, they're all different talents. They have different areas. And, and that's what we really promote. I mean, we promote them to be the best blank blank. So Teresa Williamson, who just graduated, did a spine fellowship with Chris Shaffrey in our spine division, and, and but was also interested, very interested in the ethics of, of neurosurgery and worked with somebody on the undergraduate campus um, to learn, you know, to work on, you know, deep mm. dive into the ethics of neurosurgery. So that's her specialty. Um, and Jackie Corley, who's getting ready to finish, she spent time at the Paul Farmer Global Surgery Fellowship for two years. We sent her up there and, and she's interested in global neurosurgery and writing, you know, for, you know, popular press. And she's amazing at that. So it doesn't have to be every time, you know, uh, uh, you're looking at the next brain tumor gene to try to block for, for saving somebody from a malignant brain tumor or like Steve Harwood doing his MD, PhD at Duke, and now he's working on epilepsy uh, uh, research. I mean, it, it can be whatever you want. And that's what I think. Well, you pick what you want to do well at, and we will help you get to that point by the end and help mentor you and guide you and introduce you to the right people and, and get you the job you want. Because at the end, what you want is a choice. Um, and, and I hope we get our residents in that position to get their choice, whether it's to go into a Privademic or an academic program or go do a fellowship somewhere. We're really motivated to help them get to where they want to get. Excellent. Well, Dr. Haglin, thanks so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast to tell the applicants about Duke Neurosurgery. Thanks, John. This was a great opportunity. I appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.